Chapter 18 In mid-July, I decided it was time to give up my role as a static observer and to begin seriously studying the hunting activities of wolves. This decision was hastened by the accidental uncovering of my long-neglected operation order from under a pile of dirty socks, which had been accumulating on top of it for several weeks. I had almost forgotten not only about the order, but about Ottawa itself. But as I again leafed through the minutely detailed sheaf of instructions, I realized I had been guilty of a dereliction of duty. The orders plainly stated that my first task should have been to conduct a census and general survey of wolves, followed by an intensive study of wolf-caribou-predator-prey relationships. Studies of the nature and the social behavior of wolves were thus placed firmly outside the frame of reference of my work. And so one morning I struck my little tent, packed up the telescope, and closed down my observation post. The following day, Uutek and I loaded a camping outfit aboard the canoe and set out on a prolonged cruise through the tundra plains to the northward. We covered a good many hundreds of miles during the succeeding weeks and gathered much information concerning wolf population and wolf-caribou-predator-prey relationships together with a lot of associated information which, though it was unrelated to the department's aims, could not be entirely ignored. A semi-official estimate of the wolf population of Kiwatan had already been made by the competent authorities on the basis of information received from the usual trapper-trader sources, and the given figure was 30,000 wolves. Even with my sketchy grasp of mathematics, I was able to work this out as an average of one wolf to every six square miles. If one then took into account the fact that about a third of the tundra plains lay under water, while another third consisted of barren rock hills and ridges where neither caribou, wolf, nor most other beasts could make a living, the density rose to one wolf for every two square miles, approximately. This seemed pretty dense. Indeed, had it been true, Uutek and I might have had trouble making progress due to the sheer pressure of wolves. Unhappily for the theoreticians, we found the wolves widely scattered in the usual family groups, each family occupying a territory of one to three hundred square miles. Although this dispersal was by no means uniform, we located one site, for instance, where two families had denned within half a mile of each other. And Uutek told me he had once found three females, each with a litter of pups, denning within a few feet of one another on an esker near the Kazan River. On the other hand, we traveled for three days through what looked like good wolf country on the Thluiza River, and never saw a footing, a scat, or a hair of a wolf. Reluctantly, and recognizing that it was not going to endear me to my employers, I was forced to revise the population estimate downward to 3,000. And at that, I was probably guilty of gross exaggeration. The families we encountered were of all sizes, from a single pair of adults with three pups to a group of seven adults and ten pups. Since in every case but one there were extra adults, and since I could learn nothing about their relative status in the family except by murdering them, which would have enabled me only to determine age and sex, I again resorted to Uutek for information. Female wolves do not breed until they are two years old, and males not until they are three, he told me. Until they are of breeding age, most of the adolescents remain with their parents, but even when they are of age to start a family, they are often prevented from doing so by a shortage of homesteads. <clears throat> there is simply not enough hunting territory available to provide the wherewithal for every bitch to raise a litter. Since an overpopulation of wolves above the carrying capacity of the country to maintain would mean a rapid decline in the numbers of prey animals, with consequent starvation for the wolves themselves, they are forced to practice what amounts to birth control through continence. 
some adult wolves may have to remain celibate for years before a territory becomes available. However, because the period of urgent amorous appetite is short, only about three weeks out of the year, these bachelors and spinsters probably do not suffer any great feeling of sexual deprivation. Moreover, their desire for domesticity and the companionship of other adults, as well as pups, is apparently met by the communal nature of the family group. Indeed, Uutek believed some wolves actually preferred the uncle or aunt status, since it gives them, gave them the pleasures of being involved in rearing a family without incurring the full responsibilities of parenthood. Old wolves, particularly those who had lost their mates, also tended to remain celibate. Uutek told me of a wolf who had encountered who he had encountered every year for 16 years, who, during the first six years of this period, fathered an annual litter. During the seventh winter, his mate disappeared, possibly poisoned by bounty hunters in the south. The following spring, he was back at his old den, but although a litter of pups was reared there at that season, they belonged to another pair of wolves. Perhaps, so Uutek thought, to the widower's son and daughter-in-law. In any event, the old wolf remained supernumerary to the establishment for the rest of his life. Although continuing to share in the task of providing for the pups. Apart from the fact that there are only a fixed number of homesteads available to the wolves, their abundance is apparently further restricted by a built-in birth control mechanism. Thus it happens that when food species are abundant, or the wolf population is scanty, bitches give birth to large litters, sometimes of as many as eight pups. But if the wolves are too numerous, or food is scarce, the number of pups in a litter may fall to as few as one or two. This is also true of other arctic animals, such as rough-legged hawks. In a year when the small mammal population is high, rough legs will lay five or six eggs in a clutch. But when mice and lemmings are scarce, they may lay a single egg, or they may not breed at all. Epidemic disease is the overriding factor which ensures that, even if other controlling factors fail to operate, the wolf population will not become too large for the capacity of the prey animals to maintain it. On those rare occasions when the general balance is upset, often as a result of man's interference, and wolves become too abundant, they soon begin to weaken physically as food grows scarce, and malnutrition grades into outright starvation. At times such as these, devastating epidemics of rabies, distemper, or mange invariably appear among the wolves, and their numbers are quickly reduced to a bare survival level. In 1946, the lemmings, which in the Canadian Arctic are a cyclic species whose peak of abundance occurs every four years followed by a population drop to near the zero mark were at the low point in their cycle. Coincidentally, the drastically depleted caribou herds of Kiwatan chose that year to alter their age-old migration habits and most of them bypassed southern, southern central Kiwatan entirely. It was a disastrous season for the Eskimos, foxes, and wolves alike. Hunger lay heavy on the land. A latent rabies virus flared up among the starving foxes, and the wolves began to contract the disease too. Now, animals stricken with rabies do not go mad in the usual sense of the word. Their nervous systems are affected so that they become erratic and unpredictable, and they lose the protection of, the sense, of a sense of fear. Rabid wolves sometimes walk blindly into speeding automobiles and trains. They have come stumbling in among entire teams of huskies and have been torn to pieces as a result. And not infrequently they have wandered into village streets and have been even entered tents or houses occupied by men. Such wolves, sick to the verge of death, are pitiable objects. But the human reaction to them is usually one of unbridled terror. Not of the disease, for it is seldom recognized as rabies, but of the wolves themselves. 
Grotesque incidents occur which help to sustain the general myth about the vicious and dangerous nature of the wolf. One such sick and dying wolf appeared in Churchill during the 1946 epidemic. It was first encountered by a Canadian Army corporal wending his way back to barracks after a session at the Churchill Beer Hall. According to the corporal's account, a gigantic wolf leaped at him with murderous intent, and he barely escaped with his life by running a mile to the shelter of the guardhouse. He could exhibit no physical evidence of his ordeal, but his psychic scars were evidently deep. His warning sent the whole army camp into a panic of near-hysterical proportions. American and Canadian contingents alike were mobilized, and squads of grim-faced men armed with rifles, carbines, and spotlights were soon scouring the surrounding country intent on dealing with a menace, which in a matter of wolves had grown into several packs of in a matter of hours, had grown into several packs of starving wolves. During the ensuing excitement, eleven husky dogs, one American private, and a Chippewayan Indian coming home late became casualties, not of the wolf, but of the vigilantes. For two days, children and women stayed indoors. Foot soldiers all but vanished from the army camp, and men on missions to distant buildings either went by jeep, well-armed, or did not go at all. A wolf was glimpsed on the second day by a light army aircraft which had joined the hunt, and an intrepid detachment of mounted police sallied forth to deal with it. The wolf turned out to be a cocker spaniel belonging to the Hudson's Bay Company manager. Not until the third day did the panic ease. Late that afternoon, the driver of a six-ton army truck, returning to the camp from the airport, suddenly saw a bundle of fur on the road ahead of him. He jammed on the brakes but was unable to stop in time, and the wolf, by then so sick it could no longer move, was mercifully killed. The aftermath was interesting. To this day, there are residents of Churchill, and no doubt also a number of soldiers scattered over the continent, who will, at the drop of a hat, describe the invasion of Churchill by wolves in 1946. They will tell you of desperate personal encounters, of women and children savaged, of dog teams torn to ribbons, and of an entire human community living in a state of siege. All that is lacking is the final dramatic description of the North American equivalent of a Russian troika fleeing across the frozen plains, inevitably to be overwhelmed by a wave of wolves, while the polar night resounds to the crunching sound of human bones being cracked by wolfish jaws. Chapter 19 The weeks which we spent cruising the tundra plains were idyllic. The weather was generally good. The sensation of freedom which we derived from the limitless land was as invigorating as the wide-ranging life we led. When we found ourselves in the territory of a new wolf family, we would make camp and explore the surrounding plains for as long as was required in order to make the acquaintance of the group. We, never, we were never lonely, despite the immensity and solitude of the country, for the caribou were always with us. Together with their attendant flocks of herring gulls and ravens, they imparted a sense of animation to what might otherwise have seemed a stark enough landscape. The country belonged to the deer, the wolves, the birds, and the smaller beasts. We too were no more than casual and insignificant intruders. Man had never dominated the barrens. Even the Eskimos, whose territory it had once been, had lived in harmony with it. Now these inland Eskimos had all but vanished. The little group of forty souls to which Uutek belonged was the last of the inland people, and they were all but swallowed up in this immensity of wilderness. We encountered other human beings only on a single occasion. One morning, shortly after starting on our journey, 
We rounded a bend in a river, and Uutek suddenly raised his paddle and gave a shout. On the foreshore ahead of us was a squat skin tent. At the sound of Uutek's cry, two men, a woman, and three half-grown boys piled out of the tent and ran to the water's edge to watch us approach. We landed, and Uutek introduced me to one of the families of his tribe. All that afternoon we sat about drinking tea, gossiping, laughing and singing, and eating mountains of boiled caribou meat. When we turned in for the night, Uutek told me that the men of the family had pitched their camp at this spot so they could be in position to intercept the caribou who crossed the river at a narrows a few miles farther downstream. Paddling one-man kayaks and armed with short stabbing spears, these men hoped to be able to kill enough fat animals at the crossing to last them through the winter. Uutek was anxious to join in their hunt, and he hoped I would not mind remaining here for a few days so that he could help his friends. I had no objection, and the next morning the three Eskimo men departed, leaving me to bask in a magnificent August day. The fly season was over, it was hot, and there was no wind. I decided to take advantage of the weather to have a swim and get some sun on my pallid skin, so I went off a few hundred yards from the Eskimo camp. Modesty is the last of the civilized vices which a man sheds in the wilds. Stripped, swam, and then climbed a nearby ridge to lay down to sunbathe. Wolf-like, I occasionally raised my head and glanced around me, and about noon I saw a group of wolves crossing the crest of the next ridge to the north. There were three wolves, one of them white, but the other two were almost black, a rare color phase. All were adults, but one of the black ones was smaller and lighter than the rest, and was probably a female. I was in a quandary. My clothes lay beside the shore, some distance away, and I had only my rubber shoes and my binoculars with me on the ridge. If I went back for my clothes, I knew I might lose track of these wolves. But I thought, who needed clothes on a day like this? The wolves had by now disappeared over the next crest, so I seized my binoculars and haired off in pursuit. The countryside was a maze of low ridges, separated by small valleys which were carpeted with grassy swales, where small groups of caribou slowly grazed their way southward. It was an ideal terrain for me, since I was able to keep watch from the crests while the wolves crossed each of these valleys in turn. When they dropped from view behind a beyond a ridge, I had only to sprint after them with no danger of being seen until I reached another elevated position from which I could watch them traverse the succeeding valley. Sweating with excitement and exertion, I breasted the first ridge to the north expecting to see some frenzied action as the three wolves came suddenly down upon the unsuspecting caribou below. But I was disconcerted to find myself looking out over a completely peaceful scene. There were about fifty bucks in view, scattered in groups of three to ten animals, and all were busy grazing. The wolves were sauntering across the valley as if they had no more interest in the deer than in the rocks. The caribou, on their part, seemed quite unaware of any threat. Three familiar dogs crossing a farm pasture would have produced as much of a reaction in a herd of domestic cattle as the wolves did among these caribou. The scene was all wrong. Here was a band of wolves, surrounded by numbers of deer. But although each species was obviously fully aware of the presence of the other, neither seemed perturbed or even greatly interested. Incredulously, I watched the three wolves trot by within fifty yards of a pair of young bucks who were lying down chewing their cuds. The bucks turned their heads to watch the wolves go by, but they did not rise to their feet, nor did their jaws stop, stop working. Their disdain for the wolves seemed monumental. The two wolves passed on between two small herds of grazing deer, ignoring them and being ignored in their turn. My bewilderment increased when, as the wolves swung up a slope and disappeared over the next crest, 
I jumped up to follow, and the two bucks who had been so apathetic in the presence of the wolves leaped to their feet, staring at me in wild-eyed astonishment. As I sprinted past them, they thrust their heads forward, snorted unbelievingly, then spun on their heels and went galloping off as if pursued by devils. It seemed completely unjust that they should have been so terrified of me while remaining so blasé about the wolves. However, I solaced myself with the thought that their panic might have resulted from unfamiliarity with the spectacle of a white man, slightly pink, and clad only in boots and binoculars, racing madly across the landscape. I nearly ran right into the wolves over the next crest. They had assembled in a little group on the forward slope and were having a social interlude, with much nose-smelling and tail-wagging. I flung myself down behind some rocks and waited. After a few mo moments, the white wolf started off again, and the others followed. They were in no hurry, and there was considerable individual meandering as they went down the slopes toward the valley floor where scores of deer were grazing. Several times, one or another of the wolves stopped to smell a clump of moss or detoured to one side to investigate something on his own. When they reached the valley, they were strung out in a line abreast and about a hundred feet apart, and in this formation they turned and trotted along the valley floor. Only those deer immediately in front of the wolves showed any particular reaction. When a wolf approached within fifty or sixty yards, the deer would snort, rise on their hind feet, and then spring off to one side of the line of advance. After galloping a few yards, some of them swung around again to watch with mild interest as the wolf went past, but most returned to the grazing without giving the wolf another glance. Within the, within the space of an hour, the wolves and I had covered three or four miles and had passed within close range of perhaps four hundred caribou. In every case, the reaction of the deer had been of a, of a piece. No interest while the wolves remained at a reasonable distance. Casual interest if the wolves came very close, and avoiding tactics only when a collision seemed imminent. There had been no stampeding and no panic. Up to this time, most of the deer we had encountered had been bucks, but now we began to meet numbers of does and fawns and the behavior of the wolves underwent a change. One of them flushed a lone fawn from a hiding place in a willow clump. The, the fawn leaped into view, not twenty feet ahead of the wolf, who paused to watch it for an instant, then raced off in pursuit. My heart began to thud with excitement as I anticipated seeing a kill at last. It was not to be. The wolf ran hard for fifty yards without gaining perceptibly on the fawn, then suddenly broke off the chase and trotted back to rejoin his fellows. I could hardly believe my eyes that fawn should have been doomed, and it certainly would have been if even a tenth of the wolfish reputation was in fact deserved. Yet during the next hour at least twelve separate rushes were made by all three wolves against single fawns, a doe with a fawn, or groups of does and fawns, and in every case the chase was broken off almost before it was well begun. I was becoming thoroughly exasperated. I had not run six miles across country and exhausted myself just to watch a pack of wolves playing the fool. When the wolves left the next valley and wandered over the far crest, I went charging after them with blood in my eye. I'm not sure what I had in mind. Possibly I may have intended to chase down a caribou fawn myself just to show those incompetent beasts how it was done. In any event, I shot over the crest and straight into the middle of the band. They had probably halted for a breather, and I burst in among them like a bomb. The group exploded. Wolves went tearing off at top speed in all directions, ears back, tails stretching straight behind them. They ran scared as they fled through the dispersed caribou herds. The deer finally reacted. And the stampede of frightened animals which I had been expecting to witness all that afternoon became something of a reality. Only, 
and I realized the fact with bitterness, it was not the wolves who had been responsible, it was I. I gave it up then, and turned for home. When I was still some miles from camp, I saw several figures running toward me, and I recognized them as the Eskimo woman and her three youngsters. They seemed to be fearfully distraught about something. They were all screaming, and the woman was waving a two-foot-long snow knife while her three offspring were brandishing deer spears and skinning knives. I stopped in some perplexity. For the first time, I became uncomfortably aware of my condition. Not only was I unarmed, but I was stark naked. I was in no condition to ward off an attack, and one seemed imminent, although I had not the slightest idea what had roused the Eskimos to such a mad endeavor. Discretion seemed the better part of valor, so I stretched my weary muscles and sprinted hard to bypass the Eskimos. I succeeded, but they were still game, and the chase continued most of the way back to the camp, where I scrambled into my trousers, seized my rifle, and prepared to sell my life dearly. Fortunately, Uutek and the men arrived back at the camp just as the woman and her crew of furies swept down upon me, and the battle was averted. Somewhat later, when things had quieted down, Uutek explained the situation. One of the children had been picking berries when he had seen me go galloping naked across the hills after the wolves. Round-eyed with wonder, he had hastened back to report this phenomenon to his mother. She, brave soul, assumed that I had gone out of my mind. Eskimos believe that no white man has very far to go in this direction, and was attempting to assault a pack of wolves barehanded and bare everything else. Calling up the rest of her brood and snatching what weapons were at hand, she had set out at top speed to rescue me. During the remainder of our stay, this good woman treated me with such a wary mixture of solicitude and distrust that I was relieved beyond measure to say farewell to her. Nor was I much amused by Uutek's comment as we swept down the river and passed out of sight of the little camp. Too bad, he said gravely, that you take off your pants. I think she liked you better if you left them on. Chapter 20 I queried Uutek about the apparently inexplicable behavior of the band of wolves I had seen at the Eskimo camp, and in his patient and kindly fashion he once more endeavored to put me straight. To begin with, he told me that a healthy adult caribou can outrun a wolf with ease, and even a three-week-old fawn can outrun all but the swiftest wolf. The caribou were perfectly well aware of this, and therefore knew they had little to fear from wolves in the normal course of events. The wolves were fully aware of it too, and being highly intelligent, they seldom even attempted to run down a healthy caribou, knowing full well that this would be a senseless waste of effort. What the wolves did instead, according to Uutek, was to adopt a technique of systematically testing the state of health and general condition of the deer in an effort to find one which was not up to par. When caribou were abundant, this testing was accomplished by rushing each band and putting it to flight for just long enough to expose the presence or absence of a sick, wounded, or otherwise inferior beast. If such a one was revealed, the wolves closed on it and attempted to make a kill. If there was no such beast in the herd, the wolves soon desisted from the chase and went off to test another group. When caribou were hard to find, different techniques were, were used. Several wolves acting in concert would sometimes drive a small herd of deer into an ambush where other wolves were waiting, or if caribou were very scarce, the wolves might use a relay system whereby one wolf would drive the deer towards another wolf posted some distance away, who would then take up the chase in his turn. Techniques such as these decreased the caribou's natural advantages, of course, but it was usually still the weakest, or at any rate the least able, deer which fell victim to the pursuing wolves. It is as I told you, Uutek said. The caribou feeds the wolf, but it is the wolf who keeps the caribou strong. 
We know that if it were not for the wolf, there would soon be no caribou at all, for they would die as weakness spread among them. Uutek also stressed the fact that once a kill had been made, the wolves did more hunting until the supply of food was completely gone, and they were forced by hunger to go back to work. These were novel concepts to one who had been taught to believe that wolves were not only capable of catching almost anything, but actuated by an insatiable bloodlust, would slaughter everything which came within their range. Of the hunts I subsequently watched, almost all followed the pattern of the first one I had seen. The hunters, numbering from one to as many as eight individual wolves, would be observed trotting unhurriedly through the dispersed groups of deer, who almost invariably seemed quite unconcerned by the presence of their mortal enemies. Every now and again a wolf, or sometimes two or three, would turn aside from the line of march and make a short dash at some nearby deer, who would wait until the attackers were about a hundred yards distant before throwing up their heads and galloping off disdainfully. The wolves would stop and watch the deer go. If they ran well and were obviously in good fettle, the wolves would then turn away. The testing was not haphazard, and I began to see a pattern of selection emerging. It was very seldom indeed that wolves bothered testing the herds of prime bucks, who were then at the peak of condition, having done nothing all summer but eat and sleep. It was not that these bucks were dangerous adversaries, their great spreads of antlers are useless as weapons, but simply that the wolves did not stand a chance of closing with them, and they knew it. Mixed herds of does with fawns were much more interesting to the wolves, for the percentage of injured, malformed, or inferior individuals is naturally higher among the fawns, who have not yet been subjected to any prolonged period of rigorous natural selection. Groups of aged and sterile does were also a favorite target for testing. Sometimes one of these old and weakened beasts would be concealed in the midst of a herd of prime and vigorous animals, but the wolves, who must have known the caribou almost as intimately as they knew themselves, would invariably spot such a beast and test what looked to my eyes like a hopelessly healthy and active herd. Fawns were often tested more severely than adults, and a wolf might chase a fawn for two or three hundred yards, but unless the young animal had given signs of weakness or exhaustion within that distance, the chase was usually abandoned. Economy of effort seemed to be a guiding principle with the wolves, and an eminently sensible one, too, for the testing process often had to be continued for many hours before the wolves encountered a caribou sufficiently infirm to be captured. When the testing finally produced such a beast, the hunt would take a new turn. The attacking wolf would recklessly expend the energy he had been conserving during the long search, and would go for his prey in a glorious surge of speed and power which, if he was lucky, would bring him close behind the fleeing deer. Panic-stricken at last, the deer would begin frantically zigzagging, a foolish thing to do, I thought, since this enabled the wolf to take shortcuts and close the gap more quickly. Contrary to one tenet of the wolf myth, I never saw a wolf attempt to hamstring a deer. Drawing upon all his strength, wolf would forge up alongside the caribou and leap for its shoulder. The impact was usually enough to send the deer off balance, and before it could recover, the wolf would seize it by the back of the neck and bring it down, taking care to avoid the wildly thrashing hoofs, a blow from any one of which could cave in the wolf's rib cage like so much brittle candy. The kill was quickly and usually cleanly made, and I doubt very much if the deer suffered any more than a hog suffers when it is being butchered for human consumption. The wolf never kills for fun, which is probably one of the main differences distinguishing him from man. It is hard work for a wolf to catch and kill a big game animal. He may hunt all night and cover 50 or 60 miles of country before he is successful, if he is successful even then. This is his business, his job, 
and once he has obtained enough meat for his own and his family's needs, he prefers to spend the rest of his time resting, being sociable, or playing. Contrary to yet another misconception, I know of no valid evidence that wolves kill more than they can use, even when the rare opportunity to do so arises. A kill made during the denning season is revisited time and again until the last ounce of meat has been stripped from it. Often, if gulls, ravens, foxes, and other scavengers are numerous, the wolf will dismember the carcass and bury sections of it at considerable distances from the site of the kill in order to preserve it for his own use. Later in the season, when the united family is freely roaming its territory, the band will camp near each kill until it is completely consumed. Of 67 wolf-killed caribou which I examined after the wolves were finished with them, few consisted of anything except bones, ligaments, hair, and offal. In most cases, even the long bones had been cracked for the marrow content, and in some cases the skull had been gnawed open, a formidable task even for a wolf. Another point of interest is that what little remained of most of these carcasses showed evidence of disease or serious debility. Bone deformations, particularly those caused by necrosis of the skull, were common, and the worn state of the teeth of many skulls showed that these belonged to old and enfeebled animals. Fresh kills, where the whole carcass was available for examination, were hard to come by, but on a number of occasions I reached a deer almost as soon as the wolves had killed it, and went with inexcusable gall shooed the wolves away. They, were, they went timidly enough, albeit unhappily. Several of these deer were so heavily infested with external and internal parasites that they were little better than walking menageries, doomed to die soon in any case. As the weeks wore on toward the summer's end, the validity of Uutek's thesis became more and more obvious. The vital importance played by the wolf in preserving rather than in destroying the caribou seemed irrefutable to me, although I was by no means sure it would appear in the same light to my employers. I needed overwhelming proof, if I was to convince them, and preferably proof of a solidly material nature. With this in mind, I began making collections of the parasites found in wolf-killed caribou. As usual, Uutek took a keen interest in this new aspect of my work, but it was a short-lived interest. Through all of recorded time, his people had been caribou eaters, living largely on raw or only partly cooked meat because of the shortage of fuel for fires. Uutek himself was weaned on caribou meat, pre-chewed for him by his mother, and it had been his staple food ever since he gave up mother's milk. Consequently, he took his meat for granted, and it had never occurred to him to turn an analytical eye upon his daily bread. When he saw me producing scores of varieties and thousands of individual worms and cysts from various parts of caribou anatomy, he was greatly surprised. One morning he was watching in somber fascination as I dissected a particularly pest-ridden old buck. I always tried to explain what I was doing so that he would understand the nature of my studies, and this seemed to be as good a time as any to brief him on the subject of parasitis parasitization. Hauling a bladder cyst about the size of a golf ball out of the caribou's liver, I explained that this was the inactive form of a tapeworm, and that, if eaten by a carnivore, it would eventually develop into several segmented creatures about thirty feet in length, coiled neatly in the new host's intestines. Uutek looked sick. You mean when it is eaten by a wolf? He asked, hopefully. Knock, I replied, exercising my growing Eskimo vocabulary. Foxes, wolves, even people will do. It will grow in any of them, though perhaps not as well in people. Uutek shuddered and began to scratch his stomach as if conscious of an itching sensation in that region. I do not like liver, fortunately, he said, greatly relieved now that he had remembered this fact. Oh, these worms are found all through the caribou, I explained, with the enthusiasm of an expert and lightning a layman. Look here. See these spots in the rump meat? 
White men call this measled meat. These are the resting forms of another kind of worm. I do not know for sure if it will grow in people, but these, and here I deftly extracted some thread-like nematode worms, each ten or more inches in length, from the dissected lungs. These have been found in men. In fact, enough of them will choke a man to death in a very little while. Uutek con coughed convulsively, and his mahogany-dark face grew wan again. That is enough, he pleaded, when he had got back his breath. Tell me no more. I go now, back to the camp, and there I will think hard of many things, and I will forget what you have told me. You are not kind, for if these things be true, then surely I will have to eat fish like an otter, or else starve to death. But perhaps this is a white man's joke? There was such a pathetic note of hope in his question that it roused me from my professor's trance, and I belatedly realized what I was doing to the man. I laughed, if in a somewhat artificial manner. Iima, Utak, it is a joke on you, only a joke. Now go you back to camp and cook our supper of big steaks, only and in spite of myself I could not restrain the adjuration. Make damn sure you cook them well. Chapter 21 By mid-September the tundra plains burned somberly in the subdued glow of russet and umber, where the early frosts had touched the ground cover of low shrubbery. The muskeg pastures about Wolf House Bay were fretted with fresh roads made by the southbound herds of caribou, and the pattern of the wolves' lives had changed again. The pups had left the den, and, though they could not keep up with Angeline and the two males on prolonged hunts, they could and did go along on shorter expeditions. They had begun to explore their world, and those autumnal months must have been among the happiest of their lives. When Uutek and I returned to Wolf House Bay, <laughs> after our travels through the Central Plains, we found that our wolf family was ranging widely through its territory and spending the days wherever the hunt might take it. Within the limits imposed upon me by my physical abilities and human needs, I tried to share that wandering life, and I, too, enjoyed it immensely. The flies were all gone, though there were sometimes frosts at night, the days were usually warm under a clear sun. On one such warm and sunlit day, I made my way north from the Den Esker, along the crest of a range of hills which overlooked a great valley, rich in forage and much used by the caribou as a highway south. A soot-flecking of black specks hung in the pallid sky above the valley. Flocks of ravens following the deer herds. Families of ptarmigan cackled at me from clumps of dwarf shrub. Flocks of old squaw ducks, almost ready to be off for distant places, swirled in the tundra ponds. Below me in the valley rolled a sluggish stream of caribou, herd after herd grazing toward the south, unconscious yet directly driven by a knowledge that was old before we ever knew what knowledge was. Some miles from the Den Esker I found a niche at the top of a high cliff overlooking the valley, and here I settled myself in comfort, my back against the rough but sun-warmed rock, my knees drawn up under my chin, and my binoculars leveled at the living stream below me. I was hoping to see the wolves, and they did not disappoint me. Shortly before noon, two of them came into sight on the crest of a transverse ridge some distance to the north. A few moments later, two more adults and the four pups appeared. There was some frisking, much nose smelling and tail wagging, and then most of the wolves lay down and took their ease, while the others sat idly watching the caribou streaming by on either side only a few hundred feet away. I easily recognized Angeline and George. One of the other two adults looked like Uncle Albert, 
but the fourth, a rangy, dark gray beast, was a total stranger to me. I never did learn who he was or where he came from, but for the rest of the time I was in the country, he remained a member of the band. Of all the wolves, indeed of all the animals in view, including the caribou and myself, only George seemed to feel any desire to be active. While the rest of us sprawled blissfully in the sun, or grazed lethargically amongst the lichens, George began to wander restlessly back and forth along the top of the ridge. Once or twice he stopped in front of Angeline, but she paid him no attention other than to flop her tail lazily a few times. Drowsily I watched a doe caribou grazing her way up the ridge on which the wolves were resting. She had evidently found a rich patch of lichens, and, though she must have seen the wolves, she continued to graze toward them until not twenty yards separated her from one of the pups. This pup watched her carefully until, to my delight, he got to his feet, stared uneasily over his shoulder to see what the rest of the family was doing, then turned and slunk toward them with his tail actually between his legs. Not even the restless George, who now came slowly toward the doe, his nose outthrust as he tasted her scent, seemed to disturb her equanimity until the big male wolf, perhaps hurt in his, in his dignity by her unconcern, made a quick feint in her direction. At that she flung her head high, spun on her ungainly legs, and galumphed, galumphed back down the ridge, apparently more indignant than afraid. Time slipped past, the river of deer continued to flow, and I expected to observe nothing more exciting than this brief interlude between the doe and the wolves, for I guessed that the wolves had already fed and that this was the usual after-dinner siesta. I was wrong, for George had something on his mind. A third time he went over to Angeline, who was now stretched out on her side, and this time he would not take no for an answer. I have no idea what he said, but it must have been pertinent, for she scrambled to her feet, shook herself, and bounced amiably after him as he went to sniff the slumbering forms of Uncle Albert and the stranger. They too got the message and rose to their feet. The pups, never slow to join in something new, also roused and galloped over to join their elders. Standing in a rough circle, the whole group of wolves now raised their muzzles and began to howl exactly as they used to do at the den esker before starting on a hunt. I was surprised that they should be preparing for a hunt so early in the day, but I was more surprised by the lack of reaction to the wolf chorus on the part of the caribou. Hardly a deer within hearing bothered to lift its head, and those few who did contented themselves with a brief incurious look toward the ridge before returning to their placid grazing. I had no time to ponder the matter, for Angeline, Albert, and the stranger now started off, leaving the pups sitting disconsolately in a row on the crest, with George standing just ahead of them. When one of the youngsters made an attempt to follow the three adults, George turned on him, and the pup hurriedly rejoined his brothers and sisters. What little wind there was blew from the south, and the three wolves moved off upwind in a tight little group. As they reached the level tundra, they broke into a trot, following one another in line, not hurrying, but trotting easily through the groups of caribou. As usual, the deer were not alarmed, and none took evasive action except when the wolves happened to be on a collision course with them. The three wolves paid no attention to the caribou either, although they passed many small herds containing numbers of fawns. <clears throat> they made no test runs at any of these groups, but continued purposefully on their way until they were almost abreast the niche where I was sitting. At this point Angeline stopped and sat down while the other two joined her. There was more nose smelling. Then Angeline got up and turned toward the ridge where George and the pups still sat. There were at least 200 deer between the two groups of wolves, and more were coming constantly into view around the eastern shoulder of the transverse ridge. 
Angeline's glance seemed to take them all in before she and her companions began to move off. Spreading out to form a line abreast, with intervals of a couple of hundred yards between them so that they almost spanned the whole width of the valley, they now began to run north. They were not running hard, but there was a new purposefulness to their movements which the deer seemed to recognize. Or perhaps it was just that the formation the wolves were using made it difficult for the herds to avoid them in the usual way <clears throat> by running off to one side. In any event, herd after herd also began to turn about and move north, until most of the caribou in the valley were being driven back the way they had come. The deer were clearly reluctant to be driven, and several herds made determined efforts to buck the line, but on each occasion the two nearest wolves converged toward the recalcitrant caribou and forced them to continue north. However, three wolves could not sweep the whole width of the valley. The deer soon began to discover that they could swing around the open wings and so resume their southerly progress. Nevertheless, by the time the wolves were nearing the ridge, they were herding at least a hundred deer ahead of them. Now for the first time the deer showed real signs of nervousness. What had become an almost solid mass of a hundred or more animals broke up into its constituent small bands again, and each went galloping off on its own course. Group after group, group began to swerve aside, but the wolves no longer attempted to prevent them. As the wolves galloped past each of these small herds, the caribou stopped and turned to watch for a moment before resuming their interrupted journey south. I was beginning to see what the wolves were up to. They were now concentrating their efforts on one band of a dozen does and seven fawns, and every attempt which this little herd made to turn either left or right was promptly foiled. The deer gave up after a while and settled down to outrun their pursuers in the straightaway. They would have done it, too, but as they swept past the clump of willows at the end of the ridge, a perfect flood of wolves seemed to take to them in the flank. I could not follow events as well as I would have wished because of the distance, but I saw George racing toward a doe accompanied by two fawns. Then, just as he reached them, I saw him swerve away. He was passed by two pups going like gray bullets. These two went for the nearest of the two fawns, which promptly began jinking. One of the pups, attempting too sharp a turn, missed his footing and tumbled head over heels, but he was up on the instant and away again. The other pups seemed to have become intermingled with the balance of the deer, and I could not see what they were up to, but as the herd drew away at full gallop, the pups appeared in the rear, running hard but losing ground. A single fawn now began outdistancing its pursuers too. All four pups were still running flat out, <clears throat> although they no longer had a chance of overtaking any of the deer. What of the adult wolves, meanwhile? When I swung my glasses back to look for them, I found George standing exactly where I had seen him last, his tail wagging slowly as I watched the progress of the chase. The other three wolves had by now returned to the crest of the ridge. Albert and the stranger had laid down to rest after their brief exertions, but Angeline was standing up and watching the rapidly retreating caribou. <clears throat> it was half an hour before the pups came back. They were so weary they could hardly climb the ridge to join their elders, all of whom were now lying down relaxing. The pups joined the group and flopped, panting heavily, but none of the adults paid them any heed. School was over for the day.